Hey, this is Brian Reisman. Welcome to Side Jams. I'm back after a short break with some brand new episodes. Keep up with the show on Facebook and Instagram and through my Brian Reisman account on Twitter. Hi, this is Perry Farrell, and you're listening to Side Jams with Brian Reisman. Since forming Butcher Babies with her fellow singer Heidi Shepard and their original lineup back in 2009, Carla Harvey has raged across the stage and in the studio with the High Energy Band. They have merged a variety of metal influences into their aggressive sound on three studio albums, and the ladies like to challenge conventional notions of what a metal frontwoman can be like. The group recently released some new singles in anticipation of their next album, including Bottom of a Bottle, Sleeping with the Enemy, Yorktown, and their latest song, Last Dance and they're hitting the road again in late August as the concert industry starts coming back to life. Beyond her metal euphoria, Carla immerses herself in art and illustration, and she is also a certified life coach, grief counselor, and a death doula. Naturally, we spoke about all of those occupations for episode 51 of Side Jams. Carla is an engaging, thoughtful speaker who has gained a lot of wisdom in helping others cope with issues in life or preparing for the end of life, and her previous work as a mortician has certainly helped her appreciate living in a whole new way. We explored those thoughts and ideas in this podcast interview, and they are also expressed in her art and comic book work. To learn more about her art, check out CarlaHarvey.com, and to learn more about her counseling and doula services, visit GoodGriefLA.com. Prior to our conversation, Carla and her partner, Anthrax drummer Charlie Benante, had held an art show at a gallery in Chicago, so we began our conversation discussing that. Well, thank you for taking the time to chat. Yeah, for sure. How was the art show? It was awesome. It was really cool. Um, it was, you know, a COVID safe event, but it was still a lot of fun and people were so respectful and people are really excited to get back out in the world and do things. That was apparent by Saturday night. I was actually watching the, the video for Yorktown. I'm like, oh, it's Catwoman back in Batman 66. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I wonder how many of your younger fans actually know that. Well, um, you know, probably not a lot, but uh, I'm a huge fan of comics and just superheroines and just fun stuff. And while we didn't, you know, necessarily say we want this to be like old school Batman, it's we wanted that campiness of old school comics to be a part of the video, which, yes, not everybody understood, but the people who did get it, they got it. And the cool thing about us is that, you know, we have a very wide range of fans, you know, all ages. So um, we, we, we do have people that knew exactly what we were trying to, to do with the video. And for people who didn't know, I think that they still enjoyed like the campy factor of it. Oh, sure. Things can translate without having to always people actually knowing what they are, but it helps if it's sort of like the Simpsons, there's like an extra layer. Yeah. And you get only like, Oh, that's what that's about. <laughs> <laughs> Looking at some of the photos here, I can figure that some of it's yours and some of it's Charlie's. Who did the EVH? I see an uh, EVH. Charlie. Charlie. Charlie started that painting, um, you know, when he died. And Charlie is a huge Van Halen fan. So, um, you know, huge fan of Eddie. So that was his way of grieving, I think, was to, you know, stay up all night long painting that um, that portrait. So I thought that was a really cool. It's cool that you're a comic book fan. What, I know you're a fan of R. Crumb and Robert Williams and stuff like that. What other stuff did you grow up with? I really loved like 90s image comics. I loved Joseph Michael Listener. I loved Tim Vigil stuff like Faust. 
I just love his inking. You know, anything comic book. I loved the dark and gritty stuff. I loved heavily inked pages. I loved, um, like I said, the image comics were, you know, a huge part of me becoming an artist. I love the way that they drew women. I've been drawing women since I was a little girl, um, like fantasy babes, you know, with the over the top bodies. And I've always been really into that whole look. I thought it had this like prowess and strength that, you know, I didn't have at the time when I was a kid growing up drawing women like this. And that's the kind of woman that I aspired to be, you know? So I just looked up to, like I said, image comics, definitely Joseph Michael listener and his Dawn series. I was obsessed with and gosh, so many, but definitely the more underground um, stuff as well as the image stuff. But I was thinking they went to the '60s psychedelic stuff too. I, I, so I found when I found Crumb, I just loved it because I've always liked smart comics, you know, with good stories or that have social commentary or they're a little political or just you know just smart. And yeah. um, his stuff was like that, and. Again, I was really attracted to the style of inking. I love the cross hatching. I love all the little intricate details. I love um, just the way that he views women, that he looks at women, <laughs> the way he draws them. Which is interesting too, because I know you've talked about some people criticize some of the stuff you've done because that you know he gets criticized. He and Robert Williams have been criticized too for the way they portray women in certain ways. But you embrace that. I I, I do embrace it because it's 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 your vision and also. You know, I think people can kind of misconstrue what people mean by their art. Like when I look at Robert Crumb art, you know, yeah, it's very sexual. I perceive it as this is a man who loves women. He loves the way they look. He absolutely worships women. And that's the way that I see it. And I think that his art is a a great tribute to women. Um, I feel the same way about my art. I love to draw women. And, you know, I feel that women are very complicated. We are very strong beings. We're mothers, daughters, best friends, you know, wives. We do a lot. We go above and beyond. And we're still supposed to be these sexy creatures. And, you know, people try to take our worth away when we don't look a certain way. So I feel like it's you know, our image and what we want to give out to the world is like really complicated at times. And I think that that's what I try to express with, with my artwork. Yeah. I mean, it can be, it can be tricky. I think, well, cause metal also has that too. I mean, when I was growing up as a, as, you know, as a teen in the eighties, I mean, metal was a boys club for the most oh, part. Oh, for sure. I you mean, know, it still is know. in a lot of ways, but it's getting, you know, a little bit more girlfriendly every day. I think that there's, <laughs> there's so, even since there our band started, women. Yeah, there's even in the last decade, there's been a, a ton of women popping up on the scene, and I love it. And, you know, um, someone told me a long time ago, you know, the more girls there are to show, the happier you're going to be if you're a guy. <laughs> so <laughs> it's like no harm in uh, no harm in that. Um, but yeah, you know, it's it's been great to see our scene grow so much. I saw Dimu Borger a couple years ago in New York, and it was like there's a lot of Mexican goth women there. I'm like, really. <laughs> it's like that's yeah. different that would never happen in the 80s or even uh, 90s i don't know I, I feel like it depends on what city you're in in la it's the same way you go to a metal concert and there is a ton of latina fans which i think is awesome when i worked at uh, i worked at a music store in la in the early 90s and i remember that there was a lot of mexican dudes would come in and they wanted the cannibal corpse albums but they wanted the uncensored covers 
<laughs> I thought that was interesting. And we, and of course I was working in a store that was owned by Disney through another company. So they would have the censored covers, which is nothing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I, I feel the same way. I mean, I think you've, you know, the reason that a lot of people even find metal is by, you know, seeing these album covers, even me, I'm looking in my room, my art room right now, I have, um, a signed Robert Williams print from Appetite for Destruction that I bought when I was young. It's a limited edition. It's probably my most treasured piece of art. But, you know, I saw this album cover when I was young and I was like, what the hell is that? I, I have to know what that is. And that's how I found Guns N' Roses, you know? Yeah. And then that was the one that was censored or yeah. changed later. Yeah. There's a lot of our stuff's hypersexualized. There's also a lot of horror themed stuff as well. I mean, you've brought that into your art and your comics and been in a couple of films. Well, I've always been into horror since I was a kid and I was also an embalmer. So I think that um, I don't necessarily try to have a horror theme. I think my theme is more death related because most of my art is just very personal. It either is sex or death themed. I about to say sex <laughs> and death. Yeah. So I, like I said, it, I guess it, to most people, death is horror. But to me, it's something a little bit different. Yeah, I was curious, you know, how you decided to go to mortuary school. I was fascinated with death since the time I was a, a little girl and, um, you know, very preoccupied with death and dying and how the body works and disease. And I was also an atheist at a very young age. So I didn't necessarily believe that, you know, you go to a heaven or a hell when you die. So that mm. fascinated me even more. And so I really wanted to find answers for myself. So I was very preoccupied with death as a kid. And um, when I found a school, you know, I, um, here, well in LA, then I decided to just go for it. And that was years later, obviously, but I had been working in entertainment for a while and just wasn't happy. wasn't fulfilled. I'd been working for the playboy channel and yep. doing a TV show. And I just, I felt like I wasn't doing anything important with my life. You know, it wasn't when you're young, you think you're going to move to Hollywood and become an actress or a model or a rock star, and it's going to be great. And it's going to fulfill you. And it doesn't always do that. And I definitely wasn't fulfilled by, you know, working at Playboy. So I quit and I went to school for something that I had been passionate about my whole life, which was, which was death. Well, it's interesting. Like I'm a big horror movie fan, but the way that, you know, you can express death and explore that in art is different than what the reality is. And I'm kind of curious, having gone to school, how that changed your view of death. Uh, well, you know, when I first went to apply to go to school, a lot of my family told me that I shouldn't do that because they didn't want me to see the things that I would see. And it is, uh, you know, a very different graphic thing. You know, you go to a funeral, but you're not preoccupied by what happened to get the body to the point <laughs> that it's sitting yeah. in the casket looking fresh in front of you. Um, so I did, you know, it, it is completely different than what you think. Embalming is pretty hardcore in some aspects. I also was an autopsy technician. So I did that as well. And it is, um, oh. it can be a little bit barbaric and a little bit gory. And I do think you become desensitized after you've done it, it becomes more like a science project. <laughs> and, but it is um, something that most people don't see, won't see, and probably would have a very hard time getting out of their mind. I was just telling Charlie uh, the other night, we were out having steaks and I said, you know, I couldn't even eat meat for a while when I started mortuary school, when I started my embalming classes, because, you know, when you open up the body and you realize 
you know, what your stake is. It's, it's like, I don't know. It was something comes over you. I did start to treat, I started to treat my body with a lot more respect after embalming and doing autopsies because I realized how lucky we are to be upright and walking. It's crazy when you open a body and, um, you know, you see what we're made of. I mean, you see it in medical books, you see pictures, but when you're actually in the situation where you're, where you're doing it as a job, you really kind of get a sense for how your body works. And we're all these like fine tuned things, beings walking around upright and doing all these crazy things. You know, I'm up on stage head banging and it's like, man, like <laughs> it's just crazy to, to yeah. think about what we are on the inside. And I think everyone should at least go to body works exhibit and see what is on the inside. And it's just amazing to me. Like I said, that we are all upright walking around and we have our own personalities and we have our dreams and our goals. And so, you know, seeing it firsthand and then also embalming people of all different ages from, you know, infancy to old age has really taught me to live in the moment, be appreciative of what you have and um, be respectful of your body. How long were you an autopsy technician for? Uh, just a short time. So what happened was, is that I went through school and I worked at this great mortuary called Holy Cross for a while. And I did autopsy technician and I did everything. And then the band started taking off and I had to make a choice. I had actually just gotten a job at the greatest cemetery, in my opinion, Forest Lawn in, uh, in LA. Right. Lemmy's buried there. Chris Cornell's there. And, um, I had to turn it down because I had to make a choice in that instant of whether I wanted to fulfill my childhood dream of being a rock star, putting my everything forward and doing that or going and, uh, just having a, a job, which, you know, I can always go back and do autopsies or be a mortician or be a funeral director. But when it comes time to, you know, put all you have into music, that could be a one shot, one chance thing. So I think I made the right decision. What do you think? <laughs> that sounds like you're doing okay. I think yeah. there's a future there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, then how did that transition over into being a grief counselor? I think you call it a death doula. Yeah. Oh, I'm a death doula and a grief counselor, which are kind of two separate things, kind okay. of the same. Okay. So again, something about funeral service was just and I also it was a uh, worked in hospice as well with people, and it, it always um, was a huge part of my life. I love working with people in that aspect. So, being on the road, obviously, I can't couldn't do it. So I went back to school again uh, while we were on the road, so that I could do counseling, and I'm also a death doula, so I can do everything now in this new landscape of you know the internet and everything, and. Um, it's been, it's been awesome because I've been able to reach a lot of fans that, um, you know, metalheads, I think they struggle with mental health. They struggle with processing grief. And so it's been a really cool way for me to reach out to, you know, people that love metal and say, Hey, it, it's okay to feel this way. And I can help guide you into healthy grieving practices, but it's, it's been awesome to be able to help people, you know, hands-on again. Death duel is sort of helping people sort of cope with the uh coming to the end of their life, essentially. Well, a grief, so a, a, what I do with my, my grief counseling is I help, you know, people who are struggling with a loss, whether that's 
you know, it could be the loss of a, a you know, a certain kind of lifestyle, loss of a job, loss of, you know, a divorce um, or a death. And then as a death doula, I actually help the person who is terminally ill or um, dying and I help them fulfill legacy projects. I help them have choices where they didn't know they had choices throughout the death process. I help explain to the family what's going to happen, what is happening. I help, you know, finalize paperwork that needs to be finalized. But, you know, a lot of times it's even just sitting with someone in silence and holding their hand and just being there for people in a time when not everyone wants to be there for you. As a culture, we have a hard time dealing with death. I mean, we're always trying to prolong life, for example. Yeah. It's, sometimes you can do that reasonably and sometimes it's really not worth it. Um, it's a different time now than it was. You know, you, you know, years and years ago, people died in the home. Your grandma and grandma lived with grandma and grandpa lived with you and you would see them get old. You would see them die. Um, and nowadays we shut our elderly behind, you know, closed doors and nursing homes. And yeah. we try to, you know, do anything that we can to prolong, you know, like it's just a different time. And I think death and dying and, and illness has become a very like kind of ugly thing, almost like an ugly secret, like the death of an American dream for us. And we don't want to deal with it and we don't want to look at it. So I'm a big advocate for, you know, dying at home. And, uh, you know, if you're on hospice, making it comfortable for yourself at home, educating the whole family about, the dying process so that people don't feel afraid. Even in, in, with my counseling, I try to be an advocate for people who are, who are ill and, you know, and try to explain to the families that this is, this is an important time to be there. You shouldn't be scared. You shouldn't want to shy away from it. It's part of life. And we are all going to be in that position at one point in time. I know. And I think like the pandemic has started making people think about those, like what they want to do with their life once it's, you know, we're through this all, whole thing. Yeah. And, uh, it's, that's, it's, it's a huge thing, you know, um, it's, you got to live while you're alive. It's people, you know, forget that time is short. And if you want to do something, you got to go for it. Oh, definitely. I think as I get older, I realize that I'm like, Oh yeah, I have this list of things I need to get done here. Yeah. It does go by quicker than you think. And I think when you get older, you start to do start to slow down a little bit. And I think that's why time goes by quicker. Exactly. Time's going by quicker. It's just that you don't, you know, when you're 25, you're like, I'm going to do this, 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 and this. And then you get all like, yeah, I don't want to be bothered with all those little things. Like <laughs> you do yeah, tend well, to focus on more important things, I guess. Exactly. But when I, when I started to, you know, when I worked as an embalmer, I immediately started living my life differently and just started doing what I wanted to do, whether, you know, as long as I didn't hurt anyone, but, you know, taking the trips, buying the shoes I wanted to buy, just, um, you know, seeing the people that I wanted to see. Yeah. And just really trying to live my life full throttle and just love as hard as I can because, again, time is short. And if if there's something that you want to do, like I have so many friends, oh, I want to write a book, I want to do this, I want to. Well, what's stopping you? Do it. You know, you can do it in these stolen hours that you have, like between, uh, you know, or when you should be when when you're watching TV. You know, start working on your novel instead. People have, we have so many opportunities during the day to do the things that we want to do. It just takes putting one foot in front of the other and going for it. How many years ago did you start, did you go to mortuary school and then become a a grief counselor? Um, I graduated in 2007 and, and then I have been counseling for about three years now. So how many people are actually aware of what your, of your other life? Oh, um, 
that I'm, you mean the people that I counsel? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> How many of them are aware? I, I'd say that most. I have a very, I mean, not everyone that I counsel is a fan of metal, but many are. Like I said, I, I find that um, I found a great niche because a lot of people who love metal, they don't know how to reach out for help. Why do you think that is? You know, I think a lot of metalheads from youth are kind of disenfranchised people or people who were misfits, people who were, you know, not supposed to um, be emotional. Um, and, you know, metal is a great release for people whether people realize it or not, when you go to a concert, you're self, you're self medicating by getting out there and, and, uh, screaming and, and getting in the pit and all that. So, but just having, um, and especially men too, you know, women are more apt to discuss their feelings with friends, yeah. with family members, men don't do that as much. So my clientele is very, um, male heavy and, it's, it's been awesome to see the light bulbs go off and for them to realize that they can be open. They can discuss things freely and it's, it, you know, it's a healing process. So what would you say is the age range for the people that you're dealing with in terms of regular grief counseling and then people that are sort of dealing with end of life stuff? It's, it, it varies. Um, I've had, uh, you know, terminally ill clients that were in their thirties and, and then also older clients as well. Um, most clients that I had for death doula work when I was younger were in hospice and they were all elderly, but, um, there's this, you know, kind of, there's so many young people that do have terminal illnesses that need services like this. They need an outlet besides their family to speak to and, kind of guide them through it. Like I said, even dictating what you want at your funeral. Some people are are kind of afraid to even voice that. Mm. And it shouldn't be something that you're afraid of. You know, if you're, say you're terminally ill and you're mid twenties and you're not going to have certain life events, well, why not make your funeral a, a life event and make it how that, how you want it to be? What smells do you want? What music do you want playing? Um, and it may sound crazy to some people. <laughs> it may sound, um, you know, a bit, um, I guess, a bit morbid to people. But it this is real life shit that people have to deal with. Look, and, like, uh, look at like a New Orleans funeral, you know? Yeah. It's different well, than a, a Catholic funeral. It, it's completely different. You know, I'm, I'm half black and um, even... African-American funerals are different. The first funeral that I ever went to was my granddaddy's and it was just a whole different feeling. And then when I worked in a Catholic cemetery and, or a Catholic, uh, you know, mortuary cemetery and the funerals that I had there were very different. Um, not a lot of crying, not a lot, just very stone faced, Depressing. um, <laughs> you know, and, uh, oh, they're in a better place now, you know, that kind of, um, that kind of, you know, talk, but, you know, not everyone feels that way and people need to express, you know, how they actually feel. And if they're upset, they need to say it. You can't just have someone say to you, well, they're in a better place and that shouldn't make it all right for you. You still need to grieve. <laughs> well, yeah, no, we, uh, that's just something that we don't, people need to get their feelings out. I've, I've, 
I've always felt that like it, I don't consider myself a t- typical male. I have a lot of female friends because I do listen to them when they talk and we have conversations about things. And it's interesting to me how a lot of my close f- male friends are emotional, but there's a lot of guys I've met that just did simple things you think would be easy to discuss. They don't do it. And yeah. it makes no sense to me. Well, I'm trying to change that. <laughs> no, it's good, actually. I mean, you obviously when you're when you're doing that, you're dealing with a lot of heavy emotions and, and feelings that people are having. How do you sort of unwind from that? You know, that's a good question because it is really hard. And so um, at the beginning of the pandemic, I had a lot of clients because everyone was kind of, you know, going through this crazy time together. And but I, you know, I was going through it too. And so I realized I had to cut back because I I couldn't really snap out of it. I was depressed all day because I, you know, I would um, help people all day and then go deal with my own depression on on the subject as well. So um, I think that taking time for yourself is hugely important when you are in an industry like this. And, um, you know, for the most part, I can separate myself from it while helping others, but it does, it is heavy and there is like an overwhelming sadness sometimes. Um, but again, self-care is important. Even just taking time to go get a massage, meditate, um, just decompress, do, I do something every day. Even my drawing, my art helps me decompress from what I'm doing with my clients. You know, it's interesting. I've been working at home for like 25 years now. And I remember when the pandemic started, I'm like, I hear more birds. I hear less planes. There's like no traffic. I was like, oh, yeah. this is a horrible time. And yet this is a, right now, this is a feeling of tranquility that we haven't had. You know, in India, there were mountains you could see that were been choked by smog before. <laughs> it's, it's crazy, right? And so during the beginning of the pandemic, that's what I discussed a lot with my clients was, you know, finding gratitude in some of the beauty that's, that's around them right now. And funny, you said birds, because, you know, I moved to, to a different state during the pandemic. I moved from my home of 20 years in LA to um, be with Charlie here in Chicago area. Yeah. And outside my window, every day of my art studio, there's this beautiful, I don't even know what kind of bird. It's not a Robin. It has a red, like little red, shoulder pads on it looks like and it's just this beautiful bird and it would I would see it every day and it would make me smile every day that little tiny thing which I may have overlooked in 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 Los Angeles in my busy life there but it brought me happiness every day seeing this one silly little bird and I tried to get my clients to find something that they can appreciate every day that they may not have taken notice of before just something to smile about because there's something that happens each day for us to just kind of, whether it's a great cup of coffee at our favorite place, you know, whether your sunny side up egg was perfect, there's always something that can make you smile during the day. And it's important to kind of relish in those small moments sometimes because life's not always going to go as planned. We're all going to have shitty days. Life's not going to work out how we wanted it to, but it's a huge life skill to be able to adapt to your new surroundings and just find a little bit of gratitude in different moments. Yeah. I have someone who like, I like all the big events at the same time. I'm easily satisfied with simple things. Like it's something yeah. just, you just have to unwind and I'm, I can be social and there's times I can just be like, all right, everybody leave me alone for two weeks and I'll just go write and do my thing. And I'm the same way. I'm easily adaptable like that. I like, like, you know, touring and being out there being on stage, but then I can also sit like a hermit and, and draw. And, uh, that's another thing I tell my clients too, is to, 
you know, get a hobby. We're also used to watching TV and that kind of thing, but having a hobby, you're never lonely. You're never, (laughs) you know, you always have something. I've said, I've talked about this with a lot of artists, you know, during the pandemic, the fact that a lot of us have things that we do that are creative. So there's always something we can be doing, not just watching or listening to something, but we're going to write something or draw something or record something. And I always think it's a good idea for people to have some sort of creative outlet, regardless of whether they make money at it or not. Of course. And I always tell too, you know, my, um, Charlie's daughter, um, we're very close and just love her to death. And, you know, I, I tell her all the time, you know, I don't think about things that I'm anxious about. I don't think about the way that I look. I don't think about who's saying what about yeah. me when I'm immersed in my hobby or in my work. And I, I wish that that's something that all young people would kind of start doing too, like having something that takes them out of this like uh, social media world where they have to compare themselves to everybody. It's like, just do your thing and get immersed in it. And it just brings this a different level of happiness. Oh, yeah. I think it's where millennials kind of struggle a little bit is that they grew up with so many devices. Yeah. Um, although being Gen X, I see a lot of Gen Xers have gotten caught up in many devices. <laughs> it kind of goes that way, too. I mean, you've, you know, you deal with obviously being a grief counselor and being a death doula. And how does how, how is getting a different view of death now informed your art? Um, I just, I, like I said, I think I celebrate death in my art by a lot of my drawings are, well, even, even if I draw like someone that's half skeleton, half, you know, um, half beautiful, it's like underneath we're all the same. It doesn't matter how gorgeous you are on the surface. Like your Elvira um, picture here, I think, or yeah. Elvira-esque picture. Yeah. Underneath we are made of the same things. Out of all your pieces of art, your, your, your paintings, your illustrations, what's your favorite or what are your favorites? Gosh, that's hard to say. I have a different favorite all the time. As I'm drawing something, I usually get very attached to it. And then I'll, you know, get attached to something else. Um, I, I drew a, like a female Joker that I'm pretty in love with. Yeah, that's cool. But I also just drew this Medusa. I always, I, I, wanted, they wanted, I really wanted to draw a sexy chick with like a Medusa, like Afro. And right. these snakes took like, <laughs> it took a month to do this drawing because it was, it's so intricate. And I just think it's stunning. That's cool. Yeah. It's funny too. I went to film school. So it's been a while since I watched some of the stuff from my past. And it's interesting how at the time it means more to you when you're younger than you get older, you start forgetting some of the stuff you did. Oh yeah. I actually was on the cover of heavy metal magazine with a piece of art That's right. and the piece of art that they chose was something that I had done in high school <laughs> and crazy. I, I drew it in Mr. Harmon's art class in Harrison high school in the early nineties. And, um, there it is in the cover of heavy metal magazine. So yeah, you definitely forget some things that you did. I, I would draw all day when I was young. Uh, I would use, uh, mostly like charcoals and draw on mat board, like giant pieces of mat board. And so I had this giant drawing. And again, like I said, it ended up on the cover of heavy metal magazine. <laughs> so what's, so what do you favor these days? What do you like to, what do you like to draw with? I love ink and markers. Love it. Is there any sort of technique you developed or is it all, have you, did you ever actually properly learn sort of illustration and drawing and painting or anything or you just sort of were self-taught? Um, I mean, I took art classes in high school and then I went to college for creative studies for a short amount of time. Um, I had a scholarship there, but it was just, I, I didn't like just, they wanted me to do automotive design and I didn't want to do that. So um, Interesting. I ended up quitting because 
they were so hard on me because they, they want, they want to make you what they want to make you, which I, you know, as an adult and not a hard headed kid anymore, I understand that. I understand getting a grasp of the fundamentals and having them steer you in a direction of a career that might make you money because, you know, fine artists don't make that much money, but you know, automotive design, especially being a, a female, I probably could have made some serious cash. So maybe they weren't wrong in pushing me that yeah. way, but it wasn't where my heart was at. Yeah, no, I mean, it's kind of hard because you sort of have to stay true to yourself. I mean, it's one of those things I was lucky. Both my parents were very supportive of what I wanted to do. They never really questioned me. Um, yeah. Even when I wanted to go to film school, they're like, all right, you know, but you have to work hard and you got to get good grades. I had the same luck. Yeah. So your parents were very supportive. My, yeah, my mom was always my biggest fan as far as like, and my grandmother too, she raised me. Um, she helped raise me and she always paid for my music lessons. And, um, they, they knew, you know, I got straight A's in school, but I was definitely going to do what I wanted to do, you know? And they knew that. And they gave me the freedom to do that. You know, I moved to LA when I was just a kid by myself, you know, I drove my car across the country, which is horrifying for parents, but yeah. You know, Especially if you're they, a woman, they worry yeah, more. You know, my mom let me go. I mean, I still can't, I can't imagine like letting my kid drive across the country alone. Um, from Mich- especially back then, you know, but I did it with my map, um, my paper map and, uh, I made it to LA and I built my life there. Isn't it interesting too? It's like, it seems really simple when people talk to other people like, Oh, you just did this. And it was like, so you they don't think about all the life experiences you had and everything it took to get to that moment. Yeah. I always tell people that ask about how they can be in a band. I said, you know, you have to get like a master's degree in life. <laughs> it, things don't always happen overnight. And, um, the people that have tenacity and persevere are the people that win in the end, you know, we have to be persistent, constantly persistent. You have to push and push and push. And I've realized that it's, it's a, it's a, there's a lot of things, a lot of it's dumb luck too. You happen to be like the right moment where you meet the right person. Or I, guess I, this- I think some of it is dumb luck or is it fate? I don't know. You know, um, yeah. I was in lots of bands in LA until I met Heidi and I, it was a, by a chance meeting of a, answering a MySpace ad and, um, you know, how do you, how do you meet certain people in your life? Henry, our, you know, our guitar player, I've known him since I worked at Playboy in the early 2000s. Well, wow. we used to go to concerts together and, uh, he came to one of our shows, uh, that me and Heidi had in a cover band that we were in and we called him to play guitar for us. So life works in mysterious ways and people that you think are supposed to be in your life for one reason, they end up being in your life for another reason, but little chance meetings. So it's hard to say if it's fate or dumb luck or whatever it is. A friend of mine said it's life is 10% what happens to you and 90% how you react to it. Which is a very good thing to say. <laughs> uh, ages ago, I worked with Playboy. For about 20 years, I worked with Playboy. A lot on the digital side. For about 10 years, I did movie reviews in the magazine. And people oh, cool. would be like, "Who do you? what do you cover? Porn? I'm like, The Hobbit? True Blood? <laughs> like they just assumed was, that like, it was nothing you could read. I'm like, I was no, a really? news anchor. I was a news anchor for Playboy. So How was that? Funny. Um, it, was, it was interesting. It was fun. And, um, then it wasn't fun, you know, (laughs) but I didn't like being, um, I didn't like being, I guess, just a playboy girl. I didn't like that. You know, the, the, the news part was fun. We had comedy writers writing our news and it was, we had a newsroom and it was really great, but I didn't like the things that went along with it. I didn't want to be, um, made out to be insecure. I didn't want people telling me to lose weight. I didn't want people to tell me that 
I needed to get lip injections. I don't like those things. I don't like comparing myself to other women. I've always liked being an individual. and I've always been smart. I, I don't want to be paraded in front of a camera just, you know, as a tits and ass show. It's, I, I need more. So are there any other, any other comic book plans coming up? Yeah. Um, I have two that I'm hoping to get out by the end of the year. It's, it's so hard to finish everything. Um, I'm working on a, a comic with my girlfriend, Marissa Telez, who's an amazing writer uh-huh. and I'm doing the art for it and it's called Hellions. And so hopefully that'll be out at the end of the year. And I'm working with artist Matt Northrup on a comic that I've written and that one is going to be awesome. It's tentatively named Persephone's Gift, but yeah. um, we may change the title. But I'm really excited to do more comics this year. And not being on the road, although I miss being on the road, it has given me time to do some more projects. So that way, when I go back out on the road, I won't be you know, pining away to do comics or art. I'll have had this time to do it, which I think is important. Well, yeah, no, I mean, this is a good time for people to get all these projects done. I, I've been trying to do so much freelance work. I haven't had a time yet to do all my other creative projects. I know this but- year has flown by. I moved. I it's, it's just been like, I still have more to do. There's more that I, I need to finish before we start up again. <laughs> it's like, slow down. So I, know do- most, I know most everyone wants the world to be open. Um, and I do too. I a hundred percent do. And I'm excited about getting back out there, but this has been a gift of time. So then how do you multitask everything in your life once it does get, what, how will you, when it, when it gets back to quote unquote normal, whatever that's going to well, be? You know, when we go back on tour, there's a lot of long hours where you're not doing anything. And that's why I started drawing again in the first place, you know, to fill up those hours. So I'll still draw every day and um, just, you know, kind of budget time and make sure that I, I don't ever want to not give time to my art or writing again, you know, you can do everything. It's just, like I said, budgeting and priorities, maybe not going out for drinks that night and working on your art instead. I know it's so one rock and roll, right? You say, yeah, I got to do some, got to do some writing tonight or some illustration. <laughs> yeah. But you know, it's like, I, I've been to a million parties. My favorite party is just being on stage. So yeah. I get that every night on tour, you know, I'm up there drinking shots with my best friends and, and throwing down. That's my party. I don't need the after party anymore. Yeah. Well, I think that's where the, a lot of the illusion of the rock and roll life has changed. You know, I think people became aware of what happens when you do too much of that. It's uh, it's harder when you get older to, to keep that well, up. To be honest, it's like, uh, especially with our voices, I, we can't party all night. Um, no. It's just, I wouldn't be able to sing the next day. I've talked to like older singers about that. The fact that at a certain age, you just had to say, okay, you know what, if you want to keep this going, it, you can't keep you know, drinking all night long and smoking and you have to be more responsible. I honestly do not know how certain people do it and I won't name names, but I know some vocalists that have just, they, they can, they don't drink water. They, they'll drink coffee and alcohol all day and they wow. still put on a great show. Um, I can't, I don't have that ability. To, <laughs> so I think that's the Keith I, Richards gene. <laughs> yeah. I, I need to baby myself when I'm on tour. I need to make sure I get sleep drink tons of water and tea. And, you know, I only drink Jaeger on the road because it's a, a nice little, it kind of coats your throat. doesn't dry you out. I guess I should close up by asking what life lessons have, have you uh, gained that you could impart to a lot of your fans, valuable things you've learned over the years? Uh, I think that again, you know, not wasting time, living your dream to the best of your ability, honing your craft. You know, you can't just say that you want to be something, you know, I'm from, you know, LA where 
everybody says they're this, says they're that. You got to go out there and do it and practice every day. You are what you do every day. Then be willing to work as a team. That's something that when I was young, I didn't care to do so much. But as I get older, you know, the magic that each of my bandmates brings to the table doesn't go unnoticed. You know, finding people that share your passion, share your goals, and are willing to work as hard as you are, that's huge. And um, also, again, expressing gratitude for everyone in your life and just saying thank you. Learn to appreciate people more. And I think you, and you, when you put things out in the world, you get things back. Exactly. Cool. Well, thank you. Thank you very much for chatting. Yeah. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Do you think we'll see any more, any more like a collected book of your artwork? I know you did a, I know you did a memoir. So I put out a, I put out a sketchbook every year of my, my art um, for the year and all that stuff's at carlaharvey.com. And Charlie and I are both featured in punk rock and paintbrushes um, upcoming book with a lot of awesome musicians and artists. Yeah. So any, any info you can find at carlaharvey.com and of course, butcherbabies.com for all things butcher babies. That's right. Well, thank you again. It was great to chat with you. Yeah. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Hopefully we'll chat soon at some point. Bye. That wraps up this latest installment of side jams. Please join me for the next episode, which will feature Gary Newman. As always, my theme music comes from Fox and the Law, licensed through AudioSocket. Thank you very much for listening. There are plenty of great episodes on the way. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.